In January of 1993, Karen Lewis and her daughter Lauren had just returned home from a weekend shopping trip to Dallas. It was Super Bowl weekend and the two were expecting to see David, Karen's husband and Lauren's father, knowing that he is a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, who had been playing the Super Bowl that year, would more than likely be home watching the game. However, they were shocked to find instead that there were two fresh sandwiches in the fridge, the VCR tape still recording, David's wedding ring and watch on the counter, and David Glenn Lewis missing. David Glenn Lewis's case would go cold for the next 11 years, but even when the family did have answers to what happened to him, the answers only led to a series of more questions. This is one of the most baffling missing person cases I have stumbled across, and I have a feeling that you might feel the same way when today we ask the question of what really happened to David Glenn Lewis. Hi, I'm your host, Missy, and I'm about to take you on a wild ride. Stories with plot twists, shocking endings, and unbelievable truths. Trust me when I tell you that this story is nuts. David Glenn Lewis was born in 1953 in Borger, Texas. After high school, David went on to college at Texas Tech University, where he graduated with honors with a degree in political science. He would continue his education at Texas Tech Law School, graduating with a doctorate in jurisprudence in 1979. Shortly after, he would meet Mary Karen, and the two would have a daughter together and name her Lauren. David was known as a hardworking, honest, and loyal family man. David was involved with his church, he was a volunteer, and he also worked with the Boy Scouts. By all accounts, he was highly respected and respectable. In 1993, 39-year-old David is working as an attorney with a law firm, Buckner, Laura, and Swindle. He had recently gone back to practicing law after losing a second term as an elected county court of law judge, which he had spent the last four years doing. On the morning of January 28, 1993, David is working at the law firm when his wife of 11 years, Karen, and the couple's daughter, Lauren, make the five-hour trek from Amarillo, Texas, to Dallas for a weekend away shopping. Around noon that day, David leaves the law firm telling his co-workers he's going to go home. He's feeling sick, but he doesn't stay home as he teaches a government class in Amarillo College until 10 p.m. that same evening. A few days later, on January 31st, Karen and Lauren return home from their shopping trip, and they're shocked to find that David is not home. The VCR had been recording the Super Bowl game and had continued recording until it ran out of tape. Two fresh turkey sandwiches sat in the fridge. Laundry is still running in the dryer, and David's watch and wedding ring were placed on the kitchen counter. A bit confused, Karen thought that maybe David had left to go watch the football game elsewhere, maybe at a friend's house since his Red Ford Explorer was also not at home. Or maybe she thought he went to work late in his office, knowing he had an appointment the following morning. And maybe he would just stay there for the evening. The next morning, Karen would panic when she discovered not only had her husband not returned home, 
but he had also missed two appointments that Monday morning. She would quickly report her husband, David Glenn Lewis, as missing. On February 2nd, David's Red Ford Explorer is found parked in front of the Potter County Courts Building in downtown Amarillo. Inside, police find David's car and house keys placed under the floor mat. They also discover David's checkbook and credit card, as well as his driver's license. And they're in the exact same spot he normally kept them in the vehicle. And nothing of David's at home was even said to be missing, except for a pair of green sweatpants. Police now try to put together what might have happened in the days prior to David's disappearance. Quickly, they discover that on January 29th, David is seen by a friend from church. He's hurriedly making his way through the Amarillo airport, and he doesn't have any luggage on him, and he seems rushed. On the same afternoon, police notice David's Red Ford Explorer parked outside the courts building. The following day, on January 30th, there's also a confirmed sighting of David. He deposits $5,000 into he and his wife's joint bank account. The Red Ford Explorer is no longer parked at the courts building, and neighbors now see it parked at David and Karen's house. Police then discover that on January 31st, the day that David is suspected to have gone missing, he purchased a plane ticket from Dallas, Texas to Amarillo, and then another ticket was purchased from Los Angeles to Dallas with his stopover in Amarillo on February 1st. However, in 1993, in order to purchase a plane ticket, at the time you did not have to show an ID. So whether or not it was David who had purchased these tickets, or even if the tickets were ever used, is still unknown. On February 1st, there's also a sighting of a man who looks like David. He's taking photos of the Red Ford Explorer from across the street of the courts building the same place that the car would be found the very next day. Another sighting of a man striking David's resemblance is made five hours away in a Dallas taxi. The cab driver saying that the man appeared nervous and paid in cash, shuffling through a wad of $100 bills. Now, with the discovery of the purchase plane tickets, police soon suspected that David had decided to leave of his own accord and soon dismissed the case. But David's wife, Karen, was not convinced. She felt like David was abducted from their home, stating that shortly before his disappearance, David had admitted to her that his life was in danger, though he did not elaborate on the who, what, why any further. And she did admit that David had received death threats in the past due to his work as a judge. It is known that the week after David's disappearance, he was supposed to make the trip to Dallas for a deposition in a $3 million lawsuit that was being brought against his former law firm, Ham, Irwin, Graham, and Cox. The suit was a conflict of interest one, and it was being brought on by a wealthy client. David Glenn Lewis, a man known for his honesty and integrity, was reported to have told his father that he was going to tell the truth at the trial. Quote, no matter who it hurt... Ironically, any paperwork for the case that was supposed to happen the week later also went missing the same time David did. This case would go cold and David Glenn Lewis would remain a missing person for the next 11 years. But the discovery of his whereabouts is what makes this case even more confusing. In 2003, a Washington State police detective named Pat Ditter stumbles upon an article entitled Without a Trace in the Seattle Intelligencer. The article is based on missing person cases and how 
The National Crime Information Center, or the NCIC, has had a lot of flaws and allows several of these missing person cases to fall through the cracks. Pat, slightly intrigued, decides he wants to see if he can start working on some of these cases himself. But instead of using the normal search function of the NCIC, he decides instead to use Google, which at the time in 2003 wasn't the search engine that it is today. Inputting characteristics of several of the cases he had of John and Jane Doe's, he was hoping that maybe some of the missing persons could be found. One week later, Pat Ditter would be staring at a photo of David Glenn Lewis, who bore a striking resemblance of who they only knew as the Yamaka County John Doe. There was one problem, however. David Glenn Lewis wore a pair of thick glasses, glasses he definitely needed to see, and this John Doe did not. Pat did not dismiss the photo, however. Instead, he consulted the evidence list of things that were found with the body, and sure enough, in the man's pocket was a pair of thick glasses. Pat would then forward a DNA analysis of the John Doe's boots and a tissue sample that had been preserved since 1993. David's mother would also be contacted and asked if she was able to supply a DNA sample in order to compare the two. When the samples were tested, they would discover that the Yamaka County John Doe was a 99.9% match to David Glenn Lewis. At 10.30 p.m. on the evening of February 1st, 1993, a man wearing work boots and camouflage military-style clothes is on Route 24 near Moxie in Washington. Sources differ on whether he was walking or laying beside the road, but the sight of him was alarming enough for one motorist to turn around and try to warn other motorists. However, once they made their way back toward the man, he was now dead, a victim of a hit-and-run. A Chevy Camaro was seen speeding away from the scene. The victim had no ID on him, and a tox screen showed that he was clear of any substances. He would remain a John Doe until Pat Ditter put the pieces together. Now confirmed David Glenn Lewis. But how did he manage to end up 1,600 miles away from his home? And why? Now this is where the story turns into pure speculation. It is possible that David had a mental break. Maybe he had thought that someone was indeed after him. Reddit threads on this case are quite interesting and speculate that perhaps the two different plane tickets in his name were used to throw someone he might have believed was threatening him off. Or perhaps they truly were threatening him and he was trying to get away, eventually ending up a victim of an accident on the side of a highway. Some speculated that David had traveled 1,600 miles on purpose to take his own life. The distance to spare his family the truth of what happened to him. If you remember, his wedding ring and watch were left on the table, maybe as a form of goodbye. But this theory doesn't make much sense if you think about it. Why would David leave two fresh sandwiches in the fridge and videotape a football game that he would never watch if he was just planning to take his own life? Now, speaking of the videotape, this is another thing that doesn't make much sense. And the time the video started recording, it was 5.15 p.m., the time the football players came out onto the field. Now, the game actually started at 5 p.m. It was apparent that the VCR itself was not preset, and someone had to physically push the record button. Had David possibly made the sandwiches, pressed record on the VCR, and then got disrupted by a phone call, a call in which he abruptly left his house and, in his haste, forgot to put his watch and ring back on? He could have just taken them off to do the dishes or 
for any other reason, really. Or was he interrupted and abducted from his home, drugged, his captors changing his clothes into military attire, something he was not known to wear at all, dropping him off on the side of the road 1,600 miles away in an unknown location, in the dark, camouflaged, where dazed and confused David would wander out into traffic? Or was the entire scene at the house completely staged? And David went missing even before that, and someone else had made the sandwiches and set up the VCR, and how nice of them to do the laundry. It does seem very interesting to me that he was supposed to be in a deposition the following week, and he might have had plans to spill the tea on something someone didn't want him to. Foul play seems likely here. The thing is, we don't know. Police never looked any more into this case, though David's family had insisted something sinister had actually happened to him. It also didn't help at all that the lead detective in this case and Karen, David's wife, didn't get along after Karen refused to take a polygraph test. Now, that doesn't mean that she's guilty. I have no, I am not convinced at all that she would be guilty of anything. I think that she was just a lawyer and a judge's wife, and she probably just knew better than to take the test. Now, as for David Glenn Lewis, we do know where he ended up. He was no longer missing, but it is still, to me and to a lot of people, one of the most baffling missing person cases out there because we don't know the why or the how. How did David end up 1,600 miles from home, dead on the side of a highway? Well, unfortunately, it's just a question we'll probably never have answers to. As always, I would love to know what your thoughts and theories are on this case, and you can share those on our Facebook group. If you're not in the Facebook group yet, it's facebook.com backslash this story is nuts podcast. Also, I'm always willing to take some story suggestions, so go ahead and send any story suggestions that you have to me at this story is nuts at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast, if you like the stories that I'm sharing with you, make sure that you're sharing the podcast as well with your friends. Make sure you're telling all your friends about it. Also, go rate, review if you haven't yet. That really just helps me out, helps me get the word out a little bit more. And if you're not subscribed, subscribe as well. All right. You guys, thank you so much for listening today. I will see you guys next week for an all new episode of This Story is Nuts, which drops every single Wednesday. And until then, stay nutty, my friends.
This Story's Nuts was written and produced by Missy Reese with music by Logan Reese off of Groovepad.